Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A whole lot of smoke and fires to match, some being started and some being put out. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio and economic historian Neil Ferguson on where China is headed. There's not a winner or a loser. I'm not saying there's any guarantee that the United States is the side that wins Cold War II. Pete Salvos of KKR on a different approach to private equity. This is a superior way of operating a company in every respect. And Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on saving money with AI. Where AI think is near-term helpful is in computer programming development. Whatever the rest of Global Wall Street was doing this week, all of us in New York were looking skyward at the worst air quality in the entire world, all because of forest fires in Canada. This is an unprecedented event in our city, and all New Yorkers should limit outdoor activity to the greatest extent possible. And while firefighters in Canada were trying to put out the fires there, things were heating up in the South China Sea as the Chinese Navy warship came close to colliding with a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Strait, even as Secretary of State Blinken planned that delayed trip to Beijing to try to take the temperature down a bit. So it's telling us the discussions could uh, involve President Xi Jinping as the United States looks to resume high-level communication. The PGA shocked everyone by trying to put out the fire in its relationship with Saudi Arabia's Live Golf, leaving people like Mark Lazary wondering why. Why did the PGA uh, 
tour do this. It's clear why Liv did it. A week ago, a day ago, a year ago, um, that was the devil, and today they're your partner. But while so many were trying to tamp the fires down, some were getting new fires started, like SEC Chair Gary Gensler going after crypto platforms Binance and Coinbase and likening what's going on to the huge scandal with Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. There's parallels here to the FTX fraud manipulation that we saw. And two new contestants entered the Republican side of the race for president in 2024, trying to light some fires under their campaigns. I know we can bring this country back, but it'll require new leadership in the White House and the Republican Party. We have leaders who have shown us over and over again that not only are they devoid of character, but they don't care. And then late Thursday, the leader in the Republican field, Donald Trump, added his own fuel to the fire as he was indicted for holding onto classified documents after he left office. It's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened. I'm an innocent man, I'm an innocent person. Despite all the heat and smoke from the week, markets came through it all relatively unscathed, with the S&P 500 ending the week in a bull market by a mere five points at 42.98, up four-tenths of a percent on the week. The Nasdaq was up just over one-tenth of a percent, while the yield on the 10-year went up five basis points to end up at 3.74. To take us through the week in the markets, we welcome now Julian Salisbury, Goldman Sachs CIO of Wealth and Asset Management, and Lisa Erickson, U.S. Bank Head of Public Markets. Lisa, let me start with you about this so-called bull market. Is it for real? Is it going to be sustained? I must say, we have our elves here that follow these things for, for Bloomberg, various securities analysts, and they think we're going to end up the year around 4,000. We're now pushing 4,300. Is it real? Well, we're uh, what we call a skeptical participant in the market, really with a neutral position on U.S. equities. And really the reason why is you've got a conflicting set of signals going on as far as what may happen with the stock market. So on the one side, we certainly know that fundamentals have been slowing, whether it's on the top-down corporate basis or on the bottom-up uh uh, top-down macro basis or the bottom-up corporate basis. And we have headwinds of continued a tight policy in monetary uh, factors. On the other hand, however, we have seen some green shoots starting to come up recently, and technicals certainly have been pushing on a relative basis the U.S. equity market higher. So are we in a new bull market? We think it still remains to be seen, but certainly there is some momentum right now towards an upward tra trajectory. Uh, Julian, we're going to hear from the Fed next week, and we talk about that tight monetary policy. Is that one of the things that could actually take this bull market back away from us again? Look, I, I think, um, just to add to Lisa's points, I think the, the, the technicals here have certainly been very supportive of this run. People came into the year very nervous, very concerned about the outlook for earnings. Earnings surprised to the upside, I think, substantially in, in Q1. And people are sitting there along a lot of cash. And I think, you know, you're going to see risk assets continue to perform here because of the, um, you know, the amount of uh, amount of cash still on the sidelines looking to get invested. Um, you know, it's interesting that you talked about a bull market. Yes, it, I guess it is now technically a, a, a bull market up, up until, you know, just a few weeks ago it was a fairly concentrated bull market so it's it's uh, you know with a, with a whether it's the top seven, eight, nine stocks have driven a large amount of that, but I'd say that's started to become more broad-based. So, um, you know, you've seen the small cap, mid cap, 
uh, industrial starting to catch up. So it's starting to look like a slightly healthier run as well than the very concentrated run we were seeing just a few weeks ago. Is there a lot of dry powder, Julian, right now? We, we see over five trillion, I think, now in money market funds. It could come back in the equities market. Yeah, there's about 5.2 trillion in U.S. money markets alone, around 6.5 trillion on a global basis. Um, it's interesting that you know the flow into those is still modestly positive, nowhere near the rate that we were seeing money coming into those money market funds um, around the events of, uh, of SV, SVB a few months ago, but it's still gradually um, trickling in. Um, you know, an interesting phenomena there, was, there was a lot of stress in the money market complex um, ahead of the debt ceiling without being resolved. That's really kind of gone out of the system. Now, you know, there's a lot of treasury issuance coming up the next few weeks, and our expectation is, you know, the money market funds are really going to take up uh, a lot of that supply. Lisa, a week, a week or two ago, we were all concerned about the banks as we had that series of bank failures starting in March. There was a lot of concern about liquidity, willingness to lend. Are we through that at this point? Do we still have risks of a lack of liquidity, particularly as we have to issue all those T-bills to make up for what we drew down because of that debt ceiling problem? We are still really carefully watching liquidity, to your point, David. And the reason why is while we've had a fortunate reprieve in what's going on with financial sector stresses, certainly uh, they are facing uh, potential increased regulatory uh, requirements as well as really just dealing with general economic slowdown. And so you've got some tightening conditions there. In addition, as you mentioned, the Treasury General account really has to rebuild because they were spending down all of that money during the debt ceiling debate and they need to rebuild up the reserves. So as they do that, they're going to pull money out of the system. What's interesting is we did just have some auctions uh, starting to rebuild that reserve this week. And the good news is as we monitored some of the yield activity around those auctions, we didn't see any uh, concerning signs at this point. But it is very early days, and there's almost about a trillion that's expected to come into the TJA coffers and out of the market really over the next several months. So that's something we'll just continue to monitor. I think this um, you know, part of the, the rally we've seen in the last few weeks is people getting increasingly comfortable that the bank situation seems to have stabilized somewhat. And that's certainly been true in the near term. I think the, the, the short-term liquidity issues have been somewhat put to bed. But I, I think it's, it's we're not out of the woods yet. I think there's still going to be continued pressure on the banks for on a whole variety of levels. I think net interest margins will remain under pressure. I think uh, credit quality is going to continue to become under pressure. We're still in the early innings there. And Julian, you're just fresh back from Berlin, a big conference over there that yep. was more private oriented, I think. Yep. What about private credit? Is it going to step in wherever we need it for the banks? Look, I think um, a lot of questions around this topic. Everyone, you know, as I go around the world, not just in, in Berlin, but uh, Middle East, Far East, you know, a lot of interest in private credit, of course, here in the U.S. Um, questions being asked about, you know, is that getting overinflated now? Is there too much excitement, too much money going into that? And I would say, look, it's, um, it's, it's great that it's there as an alternative source of capital at a time like this when the banks, um, the broadly similar broadly syndicated market at CLO markets not really there to provide liquidity so they're able to step in and I, I think there's still a long way to run I mean it's still only about um, you know about seven percent of the fixed income market is private credit only about two percent of global AUM only 17 percent even of alternatives so we still think that private credit market has uh, an opportunity to continue compounding you know 20 circa 20 percent plus growth rates over the next few years Lisa even apart from the private credit market where do you see opportunities in fixed income right now particularly 
Well, we think there's actually a number of interesting opportunities in fixed income. And while overall yields really are much higher than they were a year ago, if you look into specific sectors, there really are some very uh, additional uh, opportunities to pick up yield. So one area, for example, that we are advocating heavily with our clients is an area called reinsurance, where basically, as an investor, you're really helping to pick up some of that insurance risk, but in turn, get paid a hefty premium in the property and casualty area. And what we're seeing right now is really not only that nice incremental yield, but there's actually just a lot of pressure uh, for those prices to continue to uh, be very attractive for investors simply because there's a lack of capital in the sector. So that's really one area we're interested in. Another one really is an area called non-agency mortgages. And so here what you have is actually still fairly strong fundamentals underpinning uh, some of these borrowers for very large mortgages that are not necessarily guaranteed by the agencies. Uh, But again, very strong yields that are supported by uh, borrower repayments. Many thanks to Lisa Erickson of U.S. Bank and also Julian Salisbury of Goldman Sachs. Coming up, the all-important and all-too-strained relationship between the world's two largest economies. We hear from Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio about the U.S. relationship with China. And then we're going to hear from the economic historian Neil Ferguson. We're going to hear what he has to say about what Ray Dalio thinks about U.S.-China relations. All of that is coming up next on Wall Street Week, and we are on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. However you measure it, the economic relationship between the United States and China is the most important in the world. Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio has been an important observer of and participant in that relationship as China has emerged to become the global economic superpower that it is today. With tensions rising, this week we spent some time with Ray at Bloomberg Invest and talked with him about where U.S.-China relations are today and where they are headed. Right now, um, there are... uh, irreconcilable differences on a number of topics. Um, Taiwan, Russia, 
um, uh, reversifious chips, and so on. They're kind of at the edge. And that there's um, an inability to talk. So there's quite a bit of brinksmanship. And we are also heading into a political year here in which there's going to be more um, um, pressing, uh, pressure. Um, both sides are very worried about this. Um, so I think you're going to see restraint. I don't think it's going to lead to um, a terrible situation in terms of, but it is leading, uh, but you're going to see restraint in, an, in a period of time where you're going to see more te tensions. Um, there's the Mike Gallagher's commission and so on, um, more pressure with chips and so on and so forth. I don't think that that's going to cross the line, but it is going to raise tensions. You will see also um, more attempts, um, uh, Tony Blinken's going over, you'll see more attempts to try to smooth things out because both sides are afraid of where we are. In any case, while it'll be that kind of brinksmanship, most likely it there's a building of self-sufficiency. Uh, in other words, efficiency was, not, was the game before. Everything was global. You produce it in wherever the cheapest place was, most cost effective, and we became very intertwined with each other. Um, now in this global world, um, there's the worry about being cut off, cut off in all sorts of things. And so you're having that dynamic play uh, you know, a negative role um, in economics and inflation. In thinking about the U.S. relationship with China, which I think is probably the most important geopolitical economic relationship for the next generation, I would, I would venture to say, uh, many people have made much of the fact that China is going to overtake the United States in terms of the size of its economy, the strength of its economy. There are some questions about that now. Where are you on that question? And if, in fact, China is not as strong as we have thought it is, economically I'm talking about now, how does that affect the relationship? Um, I, I think we're, I think it's almost like splitting hairs. There are two great powers, and well, you know the uh, the difference of overtake. Um, if you take purchasing power parity, the size of GDP, they have slightly overtaken us. If you take the other, who knows? They're going The main thing is they're comparable powers in many ways, um, having strengths in them. They can do a lot of. They have a lot of dependency with each other and they can do a lot of harm. So the most important thing, I think, is how we take care of ourselves. Can we get strong? Can we raise productivity? Can we be politically and economically cohesive so that we can be effective and strong? Because, um, you know, you can't um, rule out China. Since I started to go to China, you know, 1984, uh, per capita income increased by 28 times. It's, it's, it's a power, and it's a smart power. So it's going um, to be like that. No, there's not a winner or a, or a loser. There are only either you're going to have both winners or you're going to have both losers. I mean, you founded Bridgewater, and from everything I've read about Bridgewater, I mean, you put a great emphasis on the systems involved, the mechanics involved, the engine. Uh, it seems to me, without knowing about it, having done this for 25 years or so, that AI might apply to that fairly easily. Is that your sense? Where are we going with artificial intelligence? Yeah, I'm so excited because, as you say, for 25 years, I would 
always write down my investment principles, all my principles, and then I would convert them to algorithms which became decision rules, which became systems, and everything would run, and they would, like setting up a computer chess game, it would play, I would play next to it, and we would then reconcile differences and we would learn together. Um, now what's happening with generative AI is that um, I can, one can, take all of that knowledge and have it there and then go beyond that to have it as a partner, a thought partner, because the um, intelligence has capacities that the human mind doesn't have. We don't, you know, the ability to process so much and everything at the same time. So um, I'm extremely excited. I think that this is a, um, the greatest revolution, bigger than the internet revolution. Um, and, uh, but like technology, um, it really depends. The problem isn't with the technology. The problem is with the people who use the technology. Will that technology be used to raise humanity's living standards? Or will that be used for war, in a sense, for hurting each other? And so, but any way we're gonna cut it, if you take those five, we're gonna go through a time warp. If, if, if we take the next five to 10 years, in the next five to 10 years, it's like gonna go through a time warp. We're gonna come out the other side and you're gonna see a very completely different world. Ray Dalio always puts his analysis of finance, markets, and the economy into a broader historical perspective. And so we asked noted economic historian Neil Ferguson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and Bloomberg opinion columnist, for his reaction to Ray's analysis. There are certainly uh, irreconcilable differences, uh, and there's certainly not enough communication going on. Uh, Ray Dalio talks about there being restraint I think that's pretty clear on the US side right now because there's been quite a diplomatic charm offensive uh, by Jake Sullivan. Uh, Tony Blinken is uh, going to China after they had to reschedule his last trip because of the balloon over Montana. But I'm not sure just how receptive or how restrained the Chinese side is being. Uh, Neil, do you share uh, Ray Dalio's view about the ultimate resolution of this conflict? Uh, call it Cold War II, as you've called it. Uh, he said uh, one side will not win and the other lose. Either both sides will win or both sides will lose. Do you share that view? No, and I don't understand it, to be perfectly honest. In Cold War I, I don't think there's any controversy that one side won, the United States and its allies, and the other side lost, the Soviet Union, which of course disintegrated uh, in 1991. And why shouldn't there be a similar outcome to a second Cold War? Now, I'm not saying there's any guarantee that the United States is the side that wins Cold War II. China's a much more formidable opponent than the Soviet uh, Union was. And I sometimes think that the United States isn't in the same kind of domestic internal shape that it was in Cold War One. But I think the, the key point about a cold war to remember is that if it stays cold, it doesn't escalate into hot war, at least not at the global level. You can have hot wars in uh, uh, spaces like, say, Ukraine. But if it doesn't escalate into World War III, then the United States and its allies are probably better placed to win. That was Bloomberg opinion columnist Neil Ferguson of the Hoover Institutions.
Coming up, improving your investment by sharing some of the upside. We'll talk with Pete Stavros of KKR about his approach to private equity with a decidedly different tilt. You've got a better opportunity to deliver on value creation. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Stakeholder capitalism. Milton Friedman famously wrote in the New York Times over 50 years ago that the social responsibility of a business is to increase its profits. I think we've had 50 years, let's say, of Milton Friedman. Some good, right, in terms of competitiveness and innovation, some bad. And this became something of a gospel for many in the business community for years. All of us are Ohana and that our local communities, plus our employees and our customers, uh, and our partners, all of them are key stakeholders and that we're trying to practice stakeholder capitalism. But recently, there's been a new initiative dubbed Stakeholder Capitalism, trying to make sure corporations are doing their best to serve all stakeholders, including shareholders, employees, customers, suppliers, and communities, as set out in a business roundtable statement signed by 200 of its CEOs in 2019. You have to produce for your customers, your teammates, and your shareholders and you have to produce for society. Because if you don't have and, if that's an or, I won't be sitting here. And after that, mentions of purpose-driven actions in S&P 500 company earnings calls jumped. But recently, it's been the subject of some debate, with as many as 15 states taking the side against ESG investing. The facts show that when you have a diverse workforce with inclusive leadership that listens to those employees, that takes into account their views, you actually add value to the company. Whatever you think about stakeholder capitalism overall, it hasn't historically been associated with the rough and tumble business of private equity, the kind that made presidential candidate Mitt Romney's running Bain Capital an issue in 2012. It's a very healthy and positive debate. That doesn't mean the private equity world is going to enjoy it very much. But all that may be changing. To take us through how stakeholder capitalism may be changing the face of private equity, we welcome now Pete Stavros. He's KKR, co-head of Global Private Equity. So welcome, Pete. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. For you, because you're actually doing it rather than talking about it, what is stakeholder capitalism? Well, stakeholder capitalism, for me, is finding a way to not only deliver great outcomes for shareholders, but doing right by workers and, and the climate. And I have to say there's tons of brilliant people working on climate issues. Obviously, it's critical. There's not enough people focused on labor. And so that's really my passion. A lot of it has to do with how I grew up. My dad was a construction worker for 40 years, earned an hourly wage, and really taught my sister and I around the dinner table what it's like being an hourly worker. You know, you don't have a voice. Nobody listens to you, there's no incentive alignment, and you have no stake in the outcome. So that ignited a passion in me from a very early age to think about these labor issues. And then when I became an investor, you know, wow, what an opportunity because you're responsible for all of these companies with all of these many employees. And if you can cascade change through a variety of, and a number of companies, which private equity is well suited to do, you can impact, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So that sounds fine, but you'll forgive me if many of us who don't understand private equity the way you do, don't associate that approach with private equity. We tend to think you go and you buy the company, you strip out costs, you leverage it up, you sell it. Yeah. Well. Look, private equity is not perfect. Uh, capitalism's not not perfect. 
but this is a superior way of operating a company in every respect. You can align incentives, not just of the senior team, but of all of the employees, help them create wealth for themselves and create a better culture. I mean, if you can figure out a way, and we think we're on the right path here, to have employees less likely to quit their jobs, more engaged on the job, you've got a better opportunity to deliver on value creation initiatives, which is the core of private equity. The core of private equity is transformation. Take a good business, make it great. And you're not gonna be as effective as you could be in that effort if you don't have everyone aligned. So that sounds great. It also sounds fairly simple. Is it when you actually do it? Because often the implementations where the tricky part lies. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. Let me just define the program. The, the, the program that we've been working around around employee ownership is about much more than handing out stock. If it's just handing out stock, then we're in a compensation discussion, which is important, but that's not gonna change cultures. Uh, as my friend Dove Seidman always says, you can triple people's compensation and not get ownership behaviors, which I think mm -hmm. is very true. So we are taking ownership as the foundation, as an ethos, and then on top of that, we are building a robust employee engagement effort, teaching financial literacy, opening up the business plan to all employees, financial information, sharing financials with all employees, and teaching basic corporate finance so they can understand the information being shared with them. No, it's not easy, but it's, it's worth the effort. It's a great report, Pete. Thank you so much for joining us to bring it to us. Let's see Pete Stavros of KKR. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We talked with Brian Moynihan, chair and CEO of Bank of America, this week at Bloomberg Invest about a range of topics. But we started with the possible increases in capital requirements for the banks and how that might affect his ability to make loans. It's a fairly straightforward. If our capital ratios go up by 100 basis points, we basically, you know, simply put, um, you can't make about $150 billion of loans. And it, because people say, well, you have more capital, you can make more loans. But if we took risk on that capital, we wouldn't have that capital ratio. So it has to be a riskless build a capital, can't be out there taking risk. So the only thing you really do is leave it in cash or buy treasury securities, and, and that's not a very productive use of, of, of money. So, um, and if you had it, 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 and that's the problem. And so every time capital goes up, there's a, there's a countervailing effect to it, it impacts lending. Is that a gating function here right now? Over the last couple of weeks, you've been saying that, in fact, some of your lending is slowing down anyway, just because the economy's slowing down. Is it a demand, for, is there demand enough for the loans that you can't make? That, that ebbs and flows all the time. So the loans, the loan demand is more product of customer activity. And so we, our team has a recession predicted uh, beginning uh, in the third quarter, fourth quarter, first quarter. Bank of America research team, which Candace Browning Platt leads, is tremendous, and they have that. Um, that has moved out a little bit as a consumer and activity stayed stronger, uh, even in light of the fastest uh, Fed rate increase in a long time. And so, but it's still the prediction. And so I think companies are having gone through, you know, the inflation and then it sort of flattening out and thinking about the future, just being more careful because they realize that, you know, some are able to move prices, some are able to do it. They're getting relief on the commodity side, on the price side, but are they be able to hold price demands? Is final demand in the construction industry going to be as strong a year from now as it is today in the housing? All this is on people's minds, so they tend to uh, uh, pull in. And so that means line usage is flattened back out. So line usage was here before the pandemic and then fell and moved up. And it was kind of moving up you know, incrementally back to where the pandemic sort of flattened out for the last couple of months, which means that you know, companies are just being a little more careful. Let's talk about something that's very much in the news these days. That's artificial intelligence, particularly yeah. generative yeah. artificial intelligence, large language model. Uh, you and I have talked in the past about Erica, yeah. uh, which is a form of, I think, machine learning you've been using for some years now, five years. 
we've never really talked about what that is. Yeah. So take us through what Erica is for Bank of America right now, and then we can talk about where it's going. So what Erica is is a product, a capability that's in the mobile banking app and other that you can go into and type, either type in or say, you know, pay my landscape or pay my school, you know, school tuition, whatever it is, you know, and it will then say, pay, and it'll say the name of the, per, of the provider, uh, how much you want to pay, and then it'll go pay it. And it'll just run through the bill payment system. So instead of going to bill payment, going down the list and doing all stuff, it do it. Or what's the routing number? What's my routing number? Because that's a topic that people call us and ask us about five million times a year they used to call us. <laughs> now they don't have to. <laughs> the routing number is on the base of your check, and routing number for all yeah, of you is exactly. the same. So <laughs> it's, it's not... A, but people call because, you know, frankly, judging by the age of the people laughing, we were taught somewhere how to write a check and how the numbers <laughs> worked and what was your account number. That's no longer in the system. So um, when somebody's doing ACH and stuff. So, so uh, really like seven or eight years ago, we said, let's build something that can do that kind of language processing, the LP part of the uh, uh, thing, and, and, and then predict what the question was, use our data and our information, and, and come back with the answer to them. And so we started to do that, and the first thing we realized is the language that was out there for these natural language recognition type things was not written for banking. So what's my balance? Do you want to go to a yoga class? You know, <laughs> it, 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 think about it. it had, so the first thing I had to do is we went to uh, uh, outside and got them to write a banking language pro, uh, program and, and things. And then we had to pair it with our data and our information. And so that's now five years old. And you know, 20 million people use it. And they use it 150, 200 million times. We're just very ready to cross a billion interactions with it. We'll get another billion in another 12 to 18 months. It's growing that fast. Um, and it just saves a lot of time for the customer and client. And it's very, the experience is great. And yet people, I think, will start using even more now because they're playing around with ChatGPT and doing other things that this was sort of foreign to them. They were like, what is Erica, like you asked. But what we've seen is it just continues to grow. That was Brian Moynihan, chair and CEO of Bank of America. Coming up, the perils of trying to do good and do well at the same time, all while you're trying to run a business. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Finally, one more thought. Doing well by doing good. Corporate social responsibility is nothing new, but it's come a long way since the days of Google claiming its corporate code of conduct was simply, don't be evil. Today, a range of companies embrace values like protecting the environment. We've certainly incorporated ESG, so environmental, social, and governance, risk management and thinking into our analysis. Or promoting diversity, equality, and inclusion. You need workplaces that are truly inclusive. And guess what? That makes all our businesses more profitable in the long run. But once you dip your corporate toe into the waters of social values, it's sometimes hard to get it back out again. Consider this week, for example, the story of the Professional Golf Association, which asked its members to take a principled stance against Saudi Arabia and its live golf because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, only to reverse course and merge with live without so much as an explanation. Let's be honest, the Saudis aren't buying the PGA because they love golf. They're buying the PGA because they want to erase their dizzying campaign of political repression. Or ask the Walt Disney Company about the way out of its fight with the state of Florida after the largest entertainment company in the world took a stance on legislation restricting talk about same-sex relationships in schools rising the ire of Governor DeSantis. You know, this idea of one corporation having its own government in central Florida is something that is no longer in the best interest of the state of Florida. It's all being grouped under the heading of woke. That's a term dating back to the 1940s when black Americans referred to being woken up to injustice. But that history has largely been lost on current day leaders, such as, for example, our former president. And I don't like the term woke because I hear woke, woke, woke. You know, it's like just a term that use half the people can't even define it. They don't know what it is. Josh Bolton of the Business Roundtable asks simply that companies be left alone to serve their customers and employees, whether or not that is woke. Our message to policymakers is um, let business do business. And they, you know, they, they should get to decide how they treat their customers and their employees. And some companies find they have no choice but to consider things like climate change if they're going to stay in business, for example, insuring homes in the state of California. But never fear, whether you personally like companies going so-called woke or not, you can always vote with your own purse, as purchases of Bud Light apparently did recently when sales dipped after some marketing person sent a trans influencer beer cans with her face on them. And she then posted it on Instagram. A can with my face on it. But those customer boycotts may not be as easy as they sound, as Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas recently found out for himself. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to throw out every single Bud Light we've got in the fridge. All right, well, I guess uh, that was easy. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.